Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. The podcast you're about to listen to is part of a six-part virtual webinar series entitled Palestine and Israel, Key Issues for the 118th Congress. The series took place during February and March of 2023 and was convened jointly by the Foundation for Middle East Peace and the Middle East Institute's Palestinian Affairs Program. In real time, the series was presented for members of Congress and congressional staff only, but all six sessions were so good and the issues and viewpoints they covered so important that we're now releasing the entire series to the public. The other five sessions are also available via the Occupied Thoughts podcast, and you can find the video versions of the entire series on our website at www.fmep.org, along with resources related to each discussion. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the session. Good morning or good afternoon and welcome to this, the final session of our six-part congressional briefing series, Israel-Palestine Key Issues for the 118th Congress. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm very pleased to be co-hosting this entire series with my friend and colleague, Khaled El-Gindi, who is director of the Middle East Institute's Program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli Affairs. Thanks, Lara. So today's session is on the role of Congress, uh, help or hindrance, in which we'll be exploring the unique role that Congress uh, has played and continues to play in shaping U.S. policy toward Israel and Palestine, and the various intended and unintended consequences uh, of that role. Uh, as always, we've assembled a, a really uh, awesome panel uh, with us to, to, uh, to dig into the topic. Uh, I'll introduce them briefly here in alphabetical order, but you can see their full bios on the uh, MEI and uh, FMEP pages for this uh, event. Actually, um, Colin, I'm going to jump in because we have I got updated bio from Rebecca. I'm not sure you've seen it. So let me read Rebecca's and then I'll hand it back to you as I want to. We just got this this morning. So um, so first I'll introduce Rebecca Abu Shadid. Um, so Rebecca has worn many different hats with respect to work on Israel and Palestine. She has previously served, among other things, as director of outreach for the New America Foundation's Middle East Task Force as National Policy Director of the Arab American Institute, and as co-chair of the Board of Directors of Just Vision. And I should add, she is also a board member of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. All right, take it away, Khaled. Thanks. Uh, next, we have Hassan Al-Tayyib, who is the Legislative Director for Middle East Policy at the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Uh, and last uh, but not least, we've got uh, Josh Rubner, uh, who is Director of Government Relations at the Institute for Middle East Understanding and Adjunct Professor of Justice and Peace Studies at Georgetown University. Um, keep an eye on the chat box for things like our panelists' uh, Twitter handles, as well as links to articles and other resources relevant to today's discussion. Uh, and if you miss anything in the chat, don't worry. Uh, all the materials will be available uh, on the webpage for the series uh, after the event. Uh, so let's go ahead and uh, and get started. Um, Josh, I want to start with you. I think um, as someone who's been working on Israel-Palestine issues on Capitol Hill for many years, uh, and actually as someone who used to work on the Hill, uh, it, you uh, many years ago were at the CRS, the Congressional Research Service, uh, at a time where actually when I also worked on the Hill. So um, you have a, a unique perspective on that. Can you start us off by by answering um, the basic question of why does this issue take up so much bandwidth 
in in Congress? Yeah, that's a great. And question. could you put it in perspective for us, like in comparison to to other issues? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question, Khaled, and thanks so much for having me on this webinar. Uh, I'll I'll answer the question in in two parts, and I don't think it's basic or simple. Uh, for the first part, I'll put on sort of my academic hat, and the second half, I'll put on my more policy analysis hat. So I think it's important to look at this issue historically and understand the origins of the United States and the centrality that this notion that the North American continent was uh, a promised land for European settler colonial colonialists to invade and to enact their own version of basically the book of Joshua's dispossession and extermination of the indigenous people. And to see the United States as almost a reenactment of that biblical story. And so these type of religious themes that we've seen throughout U.S. history have also had very tangible impacts in terms of the U.S. relationship with Palestine. In the 19th century, for example, there was what one scholar called a holy land mania that overtook uh, Americans in the United States. And there were actually three fairly large scale attempts at U.S. Christian colonization of Palestine in the mid 19th century that preceded the modern day Zionist movement. And, you know, this type of Holy Land mania was expressed in many, many different ways that unfortunately we don't have time to get into today. But I think that we can understand the U.S. view and the U.S. attitude to Israel as being refracted through what's really a shared cultural mirror of settler colonialism and religious identification with Palestine. And in many respects, I think the U.S. sees itself as being reenacted and validated by Israel's dispossession and continued apartheid policies toward the Palestinian people. Now, these aren't my ideas. These are uh, ideas that I've drawn from the excellent work of other academics like Amy Kaplan, who wrote Our American Israel, and Shaul Mittelpunk, who wrote Israel and the American Mind, which are really great resources to understand these cultural and historical tap roots for U.S. relationships to Israel today. So let me take off my academic hat and put back on my policy uh, analysis hat and, and look at this on a more prosaic level. We really have to understand that I think U.S. foreign policy toward Israel and the Palestinian people is largely a function of domestic politics. And I think it's always been that way. And in this regard, I don't think it's very difficult, uh, very different, excuse me, from understanding U.S. approaches in terms of foreign policy to countries like Ireland or Armenia, where you have substantial domestic constituencies that are helping to formulate and shape this policy. And we can see how there's been a continuous more than one century existence of an active, well-organized, well-financed, and very influential Zionist lobby that has advocated for the establishment and then the consolidation of a racialized Jewish state in Palestine that oppresses and suppresses the indigenous Palestinian majority. And today, to look at this question and understand the, the complexity of the issue and the power that this advocacy network wields, there are easily dozens, if not hundreds of different organizations that are easily spending hundreds of millions of dollars every year, pumping it into the U.S. political system to maintain the status quo of U.S. support for Israel's oppression of the Palestinian people. So 
I think in some, you know, if it weren't for these historical and religious connections that we see to the issue, and if not for this huge machinery that's been put in place to keep the policy the way it is, honestly, I don't think that Israeli-Palestinian issues would have more resonance in U.S. foreign policy than other similar situations like Kashmir or Western Sahara or the Kurdish people or Tibet, for example. In other words, not a very significant and pretty marginal position. But because we do have these factors uh, playing into the situation, that is why we have such a central focus uh, on Israeli-Palestinian issues in our foreign policy. Thanks, Josh. I was listening to you and I was flashing back to you know, the good old days when you couldn't watch hearings and on on TV, you had to go to them in person. And um, as someone who at that time was covering the Hill and for appropriations hearings, which are the key hearings that dealt with Israel and Palestine, you'd get there hours early to get in line. And the first five slots in line for any of those hearings were taken up by groups working on Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Israel. Um, every time, you got a real clear sense of the, the domestic constituency um, in play there. Um, Rebecca, I want to turn to you as someone who also has spent like two decades now working. Um, I really think about how you work at the intersection between Arab American politics and activism and progressive political engagement and Palestine and seeing how this issue plays on the Hill, whether you're going in as a policy expert or advocate or going in with constituents speaking to members of Congress. Can you talk specifically about Palestine separated from, from the peace process or anything else, how, how you've seen this play on the Hill over the years? Yeah, thank you, Lauren. Thanks um, to both you and Khaled for inviting me. Um, it, it has changed, in some ways it has changed and in some ways with all of these years it hasn't. And so what I would say is this, is first of all, when we do have constituents kind of reach out to members of Congress, there's a lot of members of Congress that are still surprised to know that they have Arab American constituents. And so, you know, Josh mentioned this, that it's not just that it's that the kind of, and I would say like right wing pro-Israel organizations are very well funded, but they're very well organized. So a member of Congress, even before they're a member of Congress, when they're just a, you know, a candidate, they absolutely know that they have Jewish constituents that care very specifically about this issue. And so my community, the Arab American community, is not, not just a younger, you know, organizing community, but also, especially in a post-9-11 environment, is organizing on so many issues that really matter, immigration, civil liberties, Islamophobia. And so and these are all some of the most difficult issues in American politics that they're organizing around. So I cannot tell you how many times I've met with members of Congress who have told me, number one, I've never heard the other side. I've never been approached with this perspective before, which is disappointing, but just a reflection of the fact that this takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of resources, and uh, you know, our community is still building up its capacity in that regard. And there's a lot of members of Congress. There's 435 members of the House. And so what happens is maybe 20 or 30, 30 of them get a lot of attention. And some of these members from, you know, smaller states or smaller constituencies get much, much less attention. And so all they hear is that it's going to be very good for you to sign this letter or co-sign this resolution. And it's going to be a big problem for you if you don't. And so 
the path of least resistance because, you know, someone who is elected to, I remember doing a training for someone elected from Iowa. She did not know anything about Israel-Palestine. It is not why she came to Congress. You know, she cared about, you know, a lot of domestic issues and this was not on her radar at all. And it's it can be very difficult to talk to someone like that and then ask them, this isn't, you don't have a, a personal link to this issue. You don't necessarily have a constituent link to this issue. This isn't why you ran for Congress. Uh, it's going to be politically very difficult for you to take a principled stance. It's going to cost you, you know, perhaps lots of funds, you know, political support. Uh, your staff is going to spend 24, if you step out of what is the kind of prescribed line on this issue, it could take up all of your staff's time for several weeks. Um, but you should do it anyway, because it's the right thing to do. You know, that's a hard argument to make. Um, and having said all of that, there is still a shift that I have seen in the in the last few sessions of Congress, because it is increasingly clear that you cannot hold progressive values and call yourself a progressive Democrat and then check those values at the door specifically on one issue. Now, if, if they were asked to kind of comment on all of these issues, maybe we'd have more hypocrisies. But, but the reality is that Israel-Palestine is shoved in their faces much more often than any than, than Tibet or Kashmir or you know, Kurdistan or any of these other issues. And so the hypocrisy is so glaring and people can see it now. You know, there's a reason you know, Mohammed, Mohammed and Muna al-Kurd were called Times 100 most influential people in the world. Because when their homes were under threat in Jerusalem, they were almost 24-7, despite organizations like Facebook and Instagram and, and YouTube trying to suppress their voices, they were kind of live showing people what was going on. And there just comes a point, a critical mass, where it is so obvious what's happening that you cannot be consistent in your values as a member of Congress and and just check that at the door when it comes to what's happening right now in Israel and Palestine. And if I could just add, just because you mentioned the progressive Democrats, I mean, there's also, and we can touch on this later, this, this is not necessarily a partisan issue, right? If you go back 20 years when, when Josh and I were first working this on the Hill, I think a lot of the best, the, the most um, outspoken advocates for maybe um, some balance on on Israel and Palestine were Republicans. You've had you've had shifts in both parties, right? Where you you've seen this evolve. So it isn't just a it's not just a story about Democrats. It's a story about changes in Republicans as well. And maybe one of you guys can talk about that um, as we get into the further rounds. So Khaled, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, great, um, Hassan. I'd like to bring you into the into the discussion. So so in your work with uh, FCNL, you deal with a, a wide array of, of Middle East related issues on the Hill. Um, Yemen and other uh, conflicts and human rights issues. Um, could you give us a sense of uh, of how this issue, Israel and Palestine, um, compares uh, with some of these other uh, uh, issues uh, that you deal with on the Hill? Uh, thank you for that question. I really appreciate also what Josh and Rebecca just said. You know, I'm not saying anything new. It's a lot harder to get people to be bold on supporting Palestinian human rights uh, than there's some of these other countries. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, and I, again, I think uh, Josh and Rebecca did a great job of laying out some of those reasons. 
Um, my, my dad's Jordanian. He grew up in an authoritarian country. Even to this day, he doesn't want to talk bad about the king. He just doesn't really think about democracy and engaging in a political and civic process in the same way. Uh, but I do think, uh, you know, things are changing. Uh, the good news is that, you know, because of just incredible activism and people hanging tough for so long, there is more space. I think the Black Lives Matter movement has created more awareness about racism, not just here in the streets of America, but racism in US foreign policy. Uh, and you saw that play out in a big way in May 2021 uh, during the Israeli bombing of Gaza. You had demonstrations around the country, solidarity protests, and obviously, you know, not where I think we need to be on the hill, but things are shifting. I'll also note that, you know, AOC and, and, and members are taking notice, uh, AOC and Senator Sanders, they introduced a joint resolution of disapproval to block weapon sales of these joint direct attack munitions to Israel. And, and these were the same bombs that were that were being used uh, by Israeli warplanes to bomb homes in Gaza. And I think while it didn't pass, it didn't get a vote you're starting to see people be able to speak out and, and, and act legislatively. Um, you, you know, so on, on the contrary, congressional action on Saudi Arabia really has been a different story. You know, members have forced dozens of debates and votes to block weapon sales, curtail U.S. involvement in Saudi Arabia's uh, bombing campaign of Yemen, and also even to protect Saudi dissidents. Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, everyone knows about Jamal Khashoggi and the tragic assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, it's really been an unprecedented period of congressional engagement on reasserting war powers, and it's made a real difference in the lives of Yemenis, helping spur uh, peace talks by the warring parties. You know, since the Ramadan truce last April, Saudi Arabia hasn't bombed Yemen, and the Houthis haven't done cross-border attacks into Riyadh or into the UAE. Um, so we're, I think we're at a corner of history right now with regard to the U.S.-Saudi relationship, uh, but people, I think, also take it a little bit for granted that this all happened. This was a concerted effort by a lot of people, uh, you know, actually not a lot of people, a very a small group of people that were told that, well, you can't change the US-Saudi relationship. We can't really question that. This is, it is what it is. Uh, but, you know, people challenged that assumption and started putting votes on the floor. Uh, you know, I, I can point to in 2016, there was a cluster bomb amendment vote, uh, you know, that got 26 senators on board. Um, you know, a couple years later, uh, we got 44 votes on the Yemen War Powers Resolution introduced by Senator Sanders and uh, Senator Murphy and Senator Lee. Um, you know, they kept forcing votes, you know, things in the news would happen. Saudi Arabia bombed a school bus. And then, you know, then members of Congress reacted and it was really, you know, a trajectory, but it was not a given. Uh, that this would all happen and a lot of the same things that we're hearing about Israel-Palestine that we can't really change the relationship um, you know those assumptions were challenged over and over again I know you know people are probably saying well this is so much different and for a lot of the reasons again uh, Josh and Rebecca said I completely acknowledge that but I'm just trying to explain a little bit about how the conversation has changed and ways people have been proactively challenging those assumptions and this is again, 
real historic moment. Senator Murphy and Senator Lee took an unprecedented step this week of invoking Section 502B of the Foreign Assistance Act. Now, this is a little bit wonky, but this is a great audience for that. This is a privileged resolution in the Senate, which aims to prompt the U.S. Department of State to scrutinize and report on Saudi Arabia's human rights practices and its role in the Yemen war. And, um, you know, Murphy and, and Lee can compel a floor vote on the motion to discharge of committee out of the committee. And if the resolution passes the Senate, the administration has 30 days to report on Saudi's human rights practices or all military assistance to Saudi Arabia gets cut off. And again, this didn't happen overnight. You know, members and advocates supported these resolutions over time. Um, and, you know, the blank check support for U.S., uh, you know, U.S. support for Saudi Arabia uh, that no one questioned before is starting to shift. It's not where we need to be, but I just wanted to put out the message that things can change when people are using these tools that they have. Uh, and really just what, what I think is fascinating is just individuals like one senator can force these processes sometimes. And so, uh, you know, the progress on changing U.S and Saudi's relationship, I think has changed the expectations uh, for what's possible in Israel-Palestine. Thanks, Hassan. That was both fascinating and, and encouraging. Thank you very much. Um, Rebecca, I wanna come back to you. And 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 in the second round, I, I just wanna dig in right away to the money question, because that's always like the, the big elephant standing in the middle of the room. So it, it is, you know, people talk about Congress and the power of the purse strings, right? Foreign policy belongs to the executive, but Congress, um, it can implement its will via the power of the purse strings. And it is thereby um, no coincidence that when it comes to U.S. policy on Palestine and on Israel, U.S. aid, and here we're talking about support for aid, um, treating aid for Israel as an entitlement and a constant um, almost uh, competition year on year in Congress to see what more aid is possible. And then vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, what it feels often like a constant competition to see who can be more hostile <clears throat> to Palestinian aid or aid for anything related to Palestinians like UNRWA, how we can put more accountability on it, more conditions, more restrictions, more limitations, more reporting. Um, I want you to talk about this. I want you to talk about this in terms of what impact this dynamic has had on policy um, in terms of limiting the possibilities for what an administration can or can't do. Um, and, and also looking, just referencing Hassan's more optimistic take, I know that Senator Murphy this week also spoke out on Israel-Palestine and he talks about actually putting some uh, accountability on aid to Israel based on Israel's policies, which is something we've heard hints of more from, you know, in the past couple of years from a handful of, of members of Congress. So maybe, you know, weigh in on what you think that means or portends. Yeah, look, I think, so first of all, I think that when you have the most far right-wing government in Israel's history, and we've just exited a time of kind of in incredible turbulence in America's leadership with, you know, four years of President Trump, it's, again, going to be harder and harder for elected officials with a straight face to criticize certain statements and policies of the Trump era and just wash over them when it comes to Israel. And so in a way, and I, and I think a lot of Palestinian advocates would tell you that the danger here is that um, 
someone like Benefavir and Smotrich is just a symptom of a larger right-wing shift in Israel, just like there's Trump and there's Trumpism, they are symptoms of a much deeper problem right now and kind of decay in a society that has spent the last 50 years oppressing and occupying another people. And I think that the fact that the United States continues to give $6 billion a year with absolutely no strings attached. And I mean, Lara, you are the expert on this, that like, it's not just the amount of aid, it's the way that the aid goes, right? Any other recipient of military, US military assistance has very specific, uh, you know, there's very specific tracking to make sure that that military assistance is not involved in any gross violations of human rights. That should be the case, but because we're basically arming every portion of Israel's military, the State Department can't do the same vetting of that assistance as it does for any other recipient of U.S. military aid. And I think that what Americans are starting to understand is that we are not just, it's not just that we're taking a side or that we're not an even broker, all of these kind of phrases that you've heard for decades. It's that we are complicit in the occupation, that the occupation couldn't continue if we were not giving them $6 billion a year, every year without question. And we won't put, you know, who are we when, when, when Biden was elected and the kind of refrain from the State Department was America's back. And then you wanna have just a conversation that says, well, could we say, for instance, that US aid can't go to imprisoning minor children? No. Could we have a conversation that says US aid should not go to demolishing the homes of Palestinian civilians? No. And I just think that in a time where you have a member of Congress like Cori Bush, who was elected to Congress as a Black Lives Matter activist, who comes to the floor of the House and says that when we were marching in Ferguson, we were receiving phone calls from Palestinian activists telling us how to avoid, you know, like what, what to put in our eyes so that when we were protesting against police, we could continue protesting. You can't, all of these things that used to kind of be below the surface, you can't, you, they're, they're there now, like that hypocrisy is there for everyone to see. And so I think that what Senator Sanders did and AOC did was significant. And I think that that's exactly what the kind of far right pro, far right pro-Israel crowd is very nervous about, which is just a debate, just an open and honest debate about what U.S. military assistance is being used for. And we're allowed to have that debate on every other kind of foreign policy issue where our money goes, but we seem not to be allowed to have that debate specifically on Israel aid. And I and I don't think that that is going to be able to sustain itself. Thanks, Rebecca. Um, Josh, I want to ask you a similar line of questioning. Um, the U.S. has long been uh, the sole mediator in the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. You've written books on this very subject. Um, could you could you tell us about the role that Congress has played historically in both supporting and constraining the ability uh, of various administrations to uh, to play that role uh, of a mediator, and 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 how that role may or may not have changed over the years 
and in what direction? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a really important question. And I think that there's been a ton of consistency in terms of how Congress has approached this. And it's always acted to constrain the president's ability to try to advance some form of negotiations. Now, let's leave aside the fact that the United States cannot be an honest broker and a mediator uh, to this issue. That's a whole nother story. But let's look specifically at some of the ways in which Congress traditionally has tried to tie the hands of any administration uh, to advance negotiations. So this even began even before Israeli-Palestinian talks began. So if you look back to the 1990 Foreign Relations Authorization Act, you'll find snuck in there an amendment that requires the United States to cut off funding to any international organization that recognizes the state of Palestine and allows Palestine to join uh, that international body. And we saw how this very uh, arcane law that was never invoked actually came into play in 2011 when the state of Palestine was admitted by UNESCO as a full member state. This was the prelude to the big push of the PLO for full member status in the UN the year after. And so you have a situation resulting from this law that the US is forced to cut off funding to UNESCO to defund programs that are, for example, uh, providing literacy services to the Afghan police force, uh, doing uh, early warning systems for tsunamis that might hit the West Coast, all of these things that bear directly on U.S. interests, the U.S. has to defund because gasp, they've let Palestine into the organization. And there's a very hilarious uh, Comedy Central clip with John Oliver, which I forgot to send before, so I'll drop it in here in the chat right now, that shows just you know how ridiculous people like former Congressman Robert Wexler were in their interpretation of this law when they talk about, yes, we're cutting off our nose to spite our face. So I think that the, the UNESCO uh, debacle uh, is really a, a great example of the ways in which Congress uh, acts contrary to even U.S. interests on, on this issue. So let me point to a, a few more. Uh, let's look at the 1995 Jerusalem Embassy Act, which, of course, was enacted during the Clinton administration and President Clinton refused to sign. Uh, this effort to force the executive to transfer the U.S. Embassy to Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem can be dated back all the way to the Reagan administration. And to its credit, the Reagan administration actually pushed back against these congressional attempts and did a lot to kill them. But they were enacted at the height of what was considered to be uh, you know, the, the, the pinnacle, the acme of, of Israeli-Palestinian talks in the mid-1990s as a way to try to prejudge one of these permanent status issues in Israel's favor before the permanent status negotiations even began. So, of course, we know as a result of this law, there was a v, uh, waiver authority for presidents to waive this law on the grounds of national security, which was invoked by Presidents Clinton, Bush, uh, and Obama in a bipartisan manner, and obviously done away with under President Trump, which is why we have the embassy there today. But I think that you can make a strong argument for why this congressional pressure 
inexorably enabled someone like President Trump to actually go through with this very, very drastic policy change. Uh, let's look at a few other examples. And this one is not well, well known, and I really want to use this opportunity to point it out. In the 2013 SFOPS, there was a very, very uh, dangerous reporting requirement that was snuck into the bill, which required the State Department to differentiate between Palestinian refugees who were the original refugees and exiled from their homeland in 1948 and their descendants. So why is this so dangerous, what Congress did? First of all, it's important to point out that under international law, there is no differentiation between original refugees and their descendants. If you're the descendant of a refugee, you maintain your refugee status and your political rights as a refugee, as the UN has interpreted the matter in terms of uh, multi-generational refugee crises like in Afghanistan or Somalia, for example. So what these members of Congress uh, attempted to do was to create this division in order to say the only legitimate Palestinian refugees are those who were refugees from 1948 and their descendants are not. And so this has acted as a reporting mechanism that's been pushed primarily by uh, Republican members of Congress to attempt to defund UNRWA, to say that there is no Palestine refugee issue. There's only 20,000 remaining individuals from 1948 who are alive today, and all the rest don't count as refugees. So again, here we see Congress acting in a way that's designed to prejudge a permanent status issue between Israel and the Palestinians. It's supposed to be worked out in negotiations by trying to liquidate the Palestinian refugee issue, and also trying to defund UNRWA to uh, make sure that Palestinian refugees don't ha actually have access to the social services that they need to stay alive. It's incredibly dangerous. Let me just give you one more quickly. And this relates to a recent uh, bill that was introduced by Representative Richie Torres, just to go, just to show you that this is not a Republican issue. This is a bipartisan problem. Uh, last week or early this week, uh, he introduced H.R. 1268, which is to create a special envoy for the Abraham Accords Act. Let's talk about what the Abraham Accords are. They are Trump-era weapons deals to authoritarian regimes in the Arab world that serve to reinforce the violation of human rights throughout the region. It's a fundamentally anti-democratic, uh, fundamentally authoritarian measure that was put into place according to Trump administration officials, to place Palestinians on a quote-unquote island. So in other words, these are uh, weapons inducements to authoritarian regimes to enforce normalization between Israel and the Arab states. And here you have someone like Congressman Richie Torres who comes along and says, we should elevate the notion of the Abraham Accords to an ambassadorial post and that it should have that significance in U.S. foreign policy to try to create more of these weapons deals for authoritarian regimes that undermines human rights throughout the Arab world and also helps facilitate and consolidate Israel's apartheid rule uh, over the Palestinian people. So I would say that overall Congress, in terms of what's actually gotten passed, has played a very deleterious role. Josh, I just want to... Uh jump in to first of all correct something I said earlier, which is that our foreign military aid to Israel is 3.8 billion, not six. So apologies for that um, mistake. But 
you know, on the politics of the way that the funding to the Palestinians works as well, um, you brought up UNRWA, which is a really important, you know, point because when Biden was running for president and he, you know, needed to win Michigan and was meeting all, you know, his representatives were meeting all the time with Arab Americans, they said, absolutely, funding to UNRWA, which was cut during the Trump administration is not day one, you know, that will be restored. And then inauguration came and the first day and the second day and the hundred days, and we were pushing, pushing, pushing and saying, but this was, and, and I literally said to someone at the White House, this is the low hanging fruit. This is the easy one. And his response to me was, there is no easy one. If you guys get this, you should be happy. And so what happens is this, this humanitarian funding is treated as kind of this political treat that Palestinian advocates should be very happy to have received that always has strings on it. So if you even look at the Biden, you know, the White House's statement about the UNRWA funding, it says, and the UNRWA, you know, the that UNRWA should abide by um, the UN's principles of neutrality, tolerance, human rights, equity, and non-discrimination. So we're very comfortable and we see how lines should be drawn and exceptions should be made and monitoring should be done when it comes specifically to aid to Palestinians. But for some reason, we cannot make the same moral and value-based argument when it comes to assistance to Israel. Thanks, Rebecca. Um, and I want to add for folks who want to follow these things in real time, like Congressman Torres's recent legislation, I do publish a weekly legislative roundup. You can subscribe to that on our website, www.fmep.org. Um, and, and it's just there every week for the public. Hassan, I want to come back to you and, and I want to I want to dig into the term accountability, which comes up a lot. And for those of us who've been following this for the years, it tends to come up with things like the Arafat Accountability Act, the UNRWA Accountability Act. It's one of these words that's thrown in when you're going to have legislation going after anything to do with the Palestinians. Um, I want to talk about it when, in the terms of accountability, which activists talk about a lot, for Israel's acts. Um, and, and this is something I know that you pay a lot of attention to. Um, years ago, an American citizen named Taylor Force was killed in a, in a terrorist attack by, carried out by a Palestinian individual, unaffiliated with PA, by the way. Um, in response to the murder of Taylor Force, Congress basically remade USA to the Palestinians. We have the Taylor Force Act passed some years back. This year, we have Taylor Force Act II, which has been introduced. All of this named for a single American who was killed and effectively punishing the entire Palestinian population and body politic for that killing. In contrast, we have just last year, an American citizen journalist named Shirin Abu Atle, who was killed in the West Bank while carrying out her duties as a journalist and clearly identified as a journalist. In response, Congress hasn't really done anything. There's been some noises. And the Biden administration has, by and large, taken the position of, um, of, of trying to effectively defending Israel from consequences. So, you know, just looking at these, and I mean, maybe it's a simplistic view, it, it appears like there's a double standard um, based on uh, not whether an American citizen has been killed, but on which side of this conflict they stood and who killed them. Um, I want you to talk about that. Um, and I want you to talk about what accountability would look like um, in the case of someone like Shirin Abu Atle, or for example, there's another Palestinian killed uh, last year, an elderly man who was killed and, and left by the IDF, accident, not accident, is still an American citizen who ended up lying dead on the ground in the cold. 
Well, thank you for that question, Laura. That's collective punishment is not accountability. Let me just say it again. Collective punishment is not accountability. I was in Palestine last year. I woke to the horrific news that Al Jazeera journalist, uh, dual Palestinian American, uh, you know, citizen Shireen Abu Akhla was assassinated by Israeli snipers. After landing back in D.C., I watched footage of her funeral taking place and pallbearers being beaten uh, by Israeli police. And despite numerous investigations, firsthand accounts of uh, Palestinian witnesses, you know, all indicating that Israeli soldiers fired that bullet, Israel has, you know, continued to deny responsibility. Yes, maybe it was uh, an Israeli soldier, but it was unintentional or it was an accident. Don't don't look here. Nothing to see here. And obviously there is a double standard. It's maddening. It's nothing new. And we still don't have justice for Shireen almost a year since it happened. And you mentioned that there has been a, you know, a lot of noise uh, that that's true. Uh, we've got a lot of attention on Capitol Hill so far, to my count, over 100 members of Congress, uh, a bipartisan group, I'll add, uh, have spoken out calling for a U.S. independent investigation. Uh, Rep. Andre Carson led a letter with 58 members on it calling for both an FBI and state investigation uh, into the killing. Uh, Senator Van Hollen also led a letter. Uh, we, we saw, you know, folks like Mitt Romney, Cardin and Menendez all speak out. Um, you know, on, on the legislative side, uh, you know, let's just kind of go over everything that happened. Van Hollen passed an appropriations amendment requiring that the United States Security Coordinator, the USSC report, uh, be made available to Congress. Uh, Rep. Carson introduced the Justice for Shireen Act and, and actually nearly secured a vote on the National Defense Authorization Act. It was very similar to the one that Senator Wyden had, had supported, uh, calling for the DNI to do a rep report on Jamal Khashoggi. And obviously, you know, that, that attention was significant. Uh, and, and there is now an active FBI investigation that we're still waiting on. I think if you're, you're listening, members of Congress and staff really should be pushing DOJ to give us an update. We don't have that. We don't know where it's, you know, where it's going. And, you know, I think every single day that passes where we don't have accountability makes it more elusive. So what's left to do? Um, you know, we still need a human rights investigation by the State Department, you know, on all the circumstances that happened if U.S. weapons were used. Uh, Rep. Carson plans to reintroduce the Justice for Shireen Act. I think SFOPS or the State and Foreign Operations uh, budget is another opportunity to force a vote and try to insert some language. And obviously, you know, I'm I'm partial to 502B. I think a real human rights investigation using that process could go quite a long way. But part of it's not just getting a report, but actually forcing a vote. And more than anything, bringing attention to this, creating a political cost to Israel to make sure that this doesn't happen again, I think is really important. And it might not just be sending someone to jail, like changing the policy, changing the politics but uh, in the U.S.-Israeli relationship is absolutely paramount. And the track record right now is that, you know, we do these congressional letters, these statements, but those on their own, I don't think matter a whole lot unless they're moving towards legislation and an actual floor vote that has teeth. Um, and members really need to use all the leverage that they have to support that kind of accountability because the status quo is just going to make things escalate more. 
and continue. We're going to continue to see innocent people being killed in Palestine, and that's not good for Israel either. We, you know, that's not going to uh, you know create any sort of national security if you constantly have this chaos going on. So. Um, you know, and I think one, I keep talking about Saudi Arabia, but I think one of the things that we were able to accomplish on that, on, on that advocacy was pulling together a coalition of groups that weren't just focused on Yemen. And I think the Shireen Abu Akhla case, because, you know, one, it's an American citizen, one, it's a journalist, uh, you know, and, and a Palestinian, you know, reporting on the occupation, I think there's an opportunity there to create a, a real mass movement, you know, in support of actual accountability and, and not, you know, the quote unquote accountability that we've seen thus far. So that's why we're, you know, we think we need a lot more attention there, but not just on her case, we should be looking at 502B and some of these accountability measures for you know, settler violence, for you know, child detention, for annexation, for home demolitions, and more in the Gaza blockade. So uh, that's what we're advocating for, and obviously, um, you know, that's what we'll we'll be working for. So thanks. Thanks, Hassan. Um, let me just uh, quickly point out that we at the Middle East Institute and and also the Foundation for Middle East Peace uh, do not take a position on any particular piece of legislation. Um, that's not our role. Uh, and so obviously our, our panelists are, are free to, to, to mention uh, uh, anything that they like. I just want to make that, uh, make that clear um, uh, going forward. So <clears throat> in this next round, um, I, I, I want us to dig a little bit deeper and I want to ask each of you to answer two questions. First, what are some of the most important things um, Congress has done or is doing so far? And I think we already heard a little bit. Um, and, and secondly, what are the most important things you think Congress could or should be uh, doing to promote a just and lasting peace, or even just a more constructive uh, US role? Um, I know we touched on both of these a, a little bit, um, but uh, I wanna give you each an opportunity to, um, to say a little bit more. Uh, Hassan, uh, let's, uh, let's start with you. Uh, well, yeah, thank you for that question. Um, you know, so much of the debate in Congress about this region, about Israel-Palestine, is completely disconnected from what's actually happening. Uh, and Israelis and Palestinians will tell you that. Uh, I'll state from the outset, I think the two-state solution, you know, framing and like that's what we need, that end state is like the goal. I don't think it's helpful right now. We're so far from that reality. We really need to be thinking differently. You know, FCNL, we support a human rights frame, uh, you know, supporting equality, self-determination and human rights for Palestinians living under occupation. We want to see, you know, you know, Congress start to, you know, take action on things that reflect the actual reality on the ground. Um, you know, there's been tireless advocacy on this issue well before, you know, I've, I was even alive. And so I want to just, you know, kind of just give uh, kudos and credit to the movement that has gotten us this far. And it's been critical. People have spoken out even when it was hard to do. And many have done that at great personal risk. And so that is incredible. And we, we owe them a great, you know, we owe them a lot of gratitude. As far as proactive vehicles, you know, I think the Betty McCollum bill is, you know, known widely, the no way, no way to treat a child legislation. 
that matters and explicitly acknowledges and condemns ill treatment of Palestinian children uh, and what the Palestinian families face living under occupation, calls for end-use restrictions to block U.S. funds for annexation, child detention, and home demolition. Um, it's a leg legislative vehicle that's helped educate the American people in Congress uh, about the real threats families are facing right now. And it's also introduced the concept of end-use restrictions. Yes, we're giving uh, three point $8 billion of aid. I, I wasn't sure if there was an extra couple billion there uh, that, that I was missing. Um, you know, maybe they tucked it in somewhere else, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised. We should look at the, the, the appropriations. <laughs> um, but, you know, there was a time where you couldn't even talk about Gaza on the Hill. And, and that has changed, I think, in a large part to some of these messaging vehicles. Um, you know, another uh, effort in Congress, I think that was particularly helpful was Senator Van Hollen's no funds for annexation amendment on the FY 2021 NDAA. It was sponsored by about a dozen Democrats, including uh, Senators Murphy, Kane, and Leahy. Uh, what, what I think was notable, again, was that a really diverse group of people came out to support it. And we were actually able to lobby the Senate. So often we're just lobbying the House because there isn't an active Senate vehicle, a proactive Senate vehicle, and we're usually playing defense on the Senate. So it was really good to see that. Um, I, I think the POCAN, I don't, I don't know if this is even public yet, uh, but reps POCAN and Barbara Lee, they have a new GAO report on the humanitarian impact of the Gaza blockade. Um, you know, in concrete steps uh, to take to open up movement and access. I think that has a chance to turn into a legislative vehicle with recommendations from GAO, and we should get that at the end of the year. Um, you know, and with all that said, we have to be honest that we actually also haven't seen really any consequences for human rights against uh, uh, human rights abuses against Palestinians. We have impunity, and uh, you know, for that reason, we don't really. Uh, you know, have a lot of progress to show for it. So maybe a net Congress right now is a net negative, but I do think things are changing. Again, I have an optimistic, uh, you know, maybe that's why Laura still talks to me is sometimes I have an optimistic view. Uh, and I think that we can actually make a difference by forcing votes, forcing debates, um, you know, and, and working to kind of make some of these comparisons. And I think everyone here, if you support Palestinian human rights, you know, seeing what we've been able to accomplish on Saudi Arabia, you know, we're hoping, you know, that you also see that as a win for Palestinians, because then we can apply some of those same tools, those same lessons and same legislative vehicles uh, to support fundamental changes for Palestinian equality and human rights. Thanks, Hassan. Um, Rebecca, do you want to weigh in? And I'm going to actually just repeat, and I put into the chat Khaled's comment that this is What's being presented here are the views of our panelists and their ideas and things they're working on. Neither the Foundation for Middle East Peace nor MEI endorses any specific legislation or legislative vehicle or is making any calls. This is an educational platform. So Rebecca, you're up. Yeah, I agree with everything Hassan said. And the link that I kind of want to draw is between, you know, I think a lot of people who, maybe not the people watching this, but maybe, <laughs> You know, a lot of people say, like, this isn't my issue. I don't really care about foreign policy. This doesn't affect my life. But I think that what we know is what happens is when things get normalized, then it doesn't take long for them to actually affect your life, even if you don't realize it. 
And so I'm going to give people an example, which is the laws that have been passed, that have been introduced in the U.S. Congress, but that have been passed around the country at the state level uh, call against the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. And there is an excellent documentary that Lara is featured in, uh, produced and directed by uh, Just Vision and available on all the streaming platforms that shows the effects of these laws around the country where people have lost their jobs, people have lost their incomes because they have not been willing to sign contracts from their state governments saying that they will not participate in a boycott of the state of Israel. These are teachers, uh, speech therapists, lawyers for incarcerated individuals, a, a publisher of a local Arkansas newspaper, and what they all have in common is they said, I have a First Amendment right to free speech, and the government's not going to abridge that. And, you know, the thing, if you hear Alan Leverett, the publisher of the Arkansas Times, one of the things he said was, this newspaper doesn't write about Israel. I don't write about foreign policy. I write about Arkansas, but I'm a journalist, and no one is going to tell me that I cannot write about anything. So it's not even just, so, so this is someone who, was not interested in this conflict whatsoever, but the conflict came to him. And so if you take it one step further, and Lara shows this in, in the film, is that we now have legislation, which is introduced, that just takes out the word boycott divestment section and just take out the word Israel and just replace it with the NRA and the gun, gun manufacturers or fossil fuel companies. And all of a sudden, American citizens, without realizing that the nexus of the, the, the origin of these laws actually had to do with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, will, without even realizing it, be losing very fundamental American rights to boycott, to protest, to free speech. And it's a perfect example of, of things occurring because they're under the radar and then people wake up and they're not even they're not even aware that their rights have been taken away. And in the film, you know, we meet a legislator who's asked, "Why did you vote for this?" And he said, "Oh, I didn't even really pay attention to what I was voting for." And so it's just a really good example of how number one, it's incumbent on all of us to be very aware of how the idea of taking away rights never stays in this small place where you think that it in the box where it's gonna, where you started. It always, it will always metastasize. And so, you know, I would just kind of like to leave it with saying that this, our approach on the US approach on Israel-Palestine is not just a question of what is happening there. It is absolutely a question is what is happening there. Like these are people whose lives are ending because of an occupation that we are supporting. Um, but it's also for a lot of Americans, I think it's very hard for us to imagine that we're not always the good guys and that we we have what values that we are very proud of. But we should really question when those values are not um, displayed in our foreign policy. And this is, to me, the primary example of that gap between the values that we say that we hold dear and uh, our actual policies. Thanks, Rebecca. Uh, Josh, uh, your turn. 
Yeah, I know I was kind of doom and gloom on my last uh, time around in terms of talking about some of the restrictions and, and handcuffing that Congress has placed on, on the establishment of a just and lasting peace. But let me do the flip side of that this time around and say that in the past Congress that just concluded a few months ago, we witnessed the most expansive and boldest ever initiatives by Congress on Palestinian rights. Now, Rebecca and Hassan have done a fantastic job of outlining many of those, so I'm not going to recapitulate those specific things, but I'll point out some, some others that haven't been covered yet. First, and I think most significantly, for the first time ever last year, you had a congressional resolution introduced by Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, the first Palestinian American woman in Congress and the only Palestinian American in Congress now, recognizing the Palestinian Nakba, recognizing Israel's uprooting of the Palestinian people from their homes and lands and the destruction of Palestinian society in 1948 that is an inextricable part of the discussion about Israel's establishment. And not only did that resolution, which had six co-sponsors, by the way, and picked up those co-sponsors in a very short time, time period, uh, not, not only did it recognize the significance of the Nakba and the centrality of the Nakba to the Palestinian experience, but it also called for the United States to make good on its pledge of 75 years ago to support Palestinian refugees' rights to return home. So I think that because we're in this time where we're at the um, death knell or funeral of a very outmoded paradigm of understanding Israeli-Palestinian issues, meaning the two-state framework, which is of course a non-starter for every single Israeli political party in the Israeli government, and we have to recognize that this is just not going to happen and that we need to think beyond the two-state paradigm and framework for understanding how to resolve this issue in terms that are comprehensible to the actual lived reality of a one-state apartheid rule of Israel over the entirety of the Palestinian people. So I think that this congressional resolution really broke some important new discursive ground in Congress. So I'll point to that as one thing. Uh, another thing I think was important was the, the number of really bold uh, congressional letters that were put forward to the Biden administration last year by members of Congress. So I think there were at least three, for example, Congressman Jamel Bowman, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, and Congressman Don Beyer, all led letters that had a lot of their colleagues sign on to them, protesting Israel's inclusion into the visa waiver program. Now, if we want to talk about wonky details, this is definitely a wonky detail. So the visa waiver program allows foreign nationals to enter the United States without a visa for up to three months on a tourist visa, provided, however, that they provide reciprocal treatment to U.S. citizens. So as we all know, and as the State Department acknowledges, Israel practices pervasive discrimination against Palestinian Americans who want to go back to their home to visit friends, to visit family, so on and so forth. And Israel has even established even more draconian regulations against anyone who seeks to enter the West Bank uh, last year through its COGAT uh, agency, through the, through the, Depart the, the uh, Ministry of Defense, excuse me. So, you know, the fact that you have 
these members of Congress centering this very technical issue through a moral prism of we cannot allow Israel to continue to discriminate against U.S. citizens and give Israel privileges and benefits while it continues to do so, I think that this is very significant. I think it's very significant, for example, that former Congresswoman Marie Newman in a letter that she led, which I think had 23 signatures on it to the Biden administration, protesting Israel's expulsion of Palestinians from Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem. I think it was very significant that she mentioned that this was a war crime. And this was in uh, referenced by the uh, Rome Statute, uh, the guiding document of the International Criminal Court. And if you look back, for example, at Representative Cory Bush's letter on the Safar Yalta, that also referenced Israel's ethnic cleansing and demolition of Palestinian homes and expulsion of Palestinians from their homes is war crimes. So I think situating these issues in their moral context, in their human rights context, is an extremely important uh, development that's taking place within Congress. And I think it makes us have a bit more coherency to, to how we uh, address some of the issues related to Israel and the Palestinian people. So let me just say for a congressional audience, rather than prescribe any particular piece of legislation, I would prescribe a few principles. Number one, do no harm. Israel has oppressed the Palestinians for 75 years in a most vicious settler colonial apartheid system. Do we really need to pile on with more restrictions and conditions and uh, so on and so forth that Lara mentioned against the Palestinian people? I think the answer to that is self-evident. Number two, I think even more important is stop supporting legislation and letters that are toothless. And we saw another example of this type of toothless uh, policymaking uh, just last week or two weeks ago when Congresswoman Rosa DeLora issued this uh, letter, basically expressing hopes that somehow magically there will be a two-state resolution to this issue, but we're not going to put any actual pressure on Israel or ask the Biden administration to actually do anything to get to that outcome. These type of initiatives are not only counterproductive, but they're harmful. They harm, they're harmful in the sense that they reify this outmoded paradigm and framework that is simply no longer workable. And it's playing into the consolidation of Israel's apartheid rule over the Palestinian people. Three, at the very least, if we can't cut off all weapons to Israel as is required by law under the FAA, under the Arms Export Control Act, under the Leahy laws, can we at least impose some end-use restrictions, some conditions to do anything to at least soften the blow that Palestinians are experience, experiencing from these U.S. weapons? Can we at least do that? And then number four, and this goes back to Congresswoman Tlaib's resolution on the Nakba. Can we go beyond the two-state framework, beyond the problematics of Israeli occupation, to recognize that there is an entire system of settler colonial apartheid in historic Palestine that needs to be dismantled if we have any hopes of resolving this issue peacefully? Thanks, Josh. Those are those are that's a really useful framework, I think, for people listening. So we're getting to our last round. We're going to do this kind of as a lightning round, and you know we've we've talked a lot about initiatives in Congress. There's always a lot of talk about you know, specific outside advocacy groups. 
Um, fundamentally, members of Congress are accountable to their constituents, first and foremost. And Rebecca talked about this a little bit. I want y'all to talk about constituents and grassroots engagement more. And I think this is something that that for a lot of us who focus on policy, this gets divorced from the conversation. And certainly in Israel-Palestine, where it's, in high, it's sort of a higher politics policy, um, it's important to remember. So, Josh, I want to start with you. And this is definitely lightning round. So this obviously varies state to state, but broadly speaking, to what extent do you think congressional views and policy vis-a-vis -vis Israel and Palestine are aligned or are unaligned with the views of American voters today? And what should members of Congress and staff know about trends that are being seen today in public polling on these issues? In two minutes or less. I think it, I think the answer depends on what side of the aisle we're talking about. If we're talking about the Republican side, yes, I think that Congress is generally in step with Republican sentiment, as we see in countless public opinion polls. But if we're talking about the Democratic side of the aisle, we can see how much Democratic members of Congress are actually out of step with their constituents. So just to point your listeners to a new Gallup poll that came out just this week, for the first time ever, more Democrats sympathize with Palestinians than with Israelis by a wide margin too, 49% to 38%. And if you look at all millennials, even Republican millennials, you still have 42% sympathizing with uh, Palestinians and only 40% sympathizing with Israelis. And this goes to a uh, growing consensus uh, among public opinion polling that there is a profound partisan and generational divide on this issue. Uh, let me just point to two quick examples and then, then we'll move on to look at how public opinion polling plays into narrower uh, congressional issues. So in 2020, a uh, Brookings poll found that of people who had heard about boycotts, divestment, and sanctions for Palestinian freedom, justice, and equality, 48% of Democrats supported the idea of boycotting for Palestinian rights, and only 15% opposed it. So you look at that figure, and then you contrast that with someone like Senator Ben Cardin, who has the audacity to introduce a bill, the Israel Anti-Boycott Act, that would jail people for 20 years for providing the UN with information leading to a boycott for Palestinian rights. I think that goes to show the, the gravity of the, of the disconnect on that side of the aisle. And let me point to one more. We talked a lot about, can we at least impose end use restrictions or conditions on weapons to Israel? In 2020, Data for Progress found that 63% of all Democrats support withholding weapons to Israel based on human rights criteria, and only 24% opposed it. So in this poll, you see a clear base of support for Democrats uh, co-sponsoring the type of legislation that Congresswoman Betty McCollum has put forward over the past six years. Thanks, Josh. Um, Hassan, I want to ask you uh, to tell us a little bit about the priorities of grassroots activists that you that you work with um, when it comes to Israel and Palestine. Uh, and, and how does that figure into uh, sort of intersection with with other kind of progressive foreign policy issues? Well, thank you. And thank you for this panel. This has been really an important conversation. Folks are depressed. They feel hopeless. They feel like Congress is not a vehicle for actually making change. Um, and they feel like this situation is so entrenched, their voices 
don't matter a lot of the times. I'm not saying everybody, but this is sort of a lot of the folks that I'm in touch with. They really are having a hard time seeing the vision of where we're going because things just keep getting worse and worse. And there's a new outrage every day. And, and that's a bad thing for our work to advance Palestinian human rights and, and doing nothing or feeling like you have no agency, you know, supports more impunity. Uh, so we, we have to turn that around. And my hope is that by teaching more activists about the different tools that their individual members have uh, to make a change that, wow, I didn't know my member could, you know, start a human rights report and cut off all aid to Israel just by introducing a resolution. You know, a lot of people don't know that, you know, their member can force a vote to block weapon sales just unilaterally uh, or, you know, support things like, yeah, you know, using the Foreign Assistance Act. So. I think that's our job here, you know, as as advocates and, and policy wonky people in D.C. is to really get these tools out there, let people know what's what's possible and, uh, you know, try to make a difference that way. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, as far as this broader conversation about progressive foreign policy, uh, we have to make it not a separate thing. Yemeni lives matter as much as Palestinian lives matter, as much as Ukrainian lives matter, uh, as much as Iranian lives matter. We need to have that kind of solidarity vision. One easily applicable situation, again, I've been talking a lot about 502B, is you know using that, you can use that resolution to do multi-country requests. If you want to force a basic human rights standards on journalists, well, Israel has a problem with it, but they're not the only country. So does Saudi, so does the Philippines, Mexico, Peru, I could name all of it. Um, all these countries that get U.S. assistance have this issue. Uh, and we can stack these 502B resolutions together so no, one's, no one country is being singled out. And then we handle this uh, you know, transnational problem uh, together as opposed to dividing it up and having Palestinian activists over here working on their own. Uh, against this, you know, massive machine in APAC and the, in the Israel lobby, uh, and then bringing other people in the process. So that's what I'm hoping to accomplish, you know, in the coming years and months here. Thanks, Hassan. And that framing is also important because it is a, in some ways, it, it's an, an an answer to people who say, well, if you're talking about only Israel in this legislation, then you are ipso facto um, discriminating against Israel. You're anti-Israel. You're singling Israel out for special treatment compared to everybody else. Um, you know, arguably the demand is that you actually single Israel out for different treatment and be held to a lower standard in many cases. But um, what you're suggesting is a more and not not to de-exceptionalize. I think that that's very interesting. Rebecca, you're going to get the last word. And here I want to ask you to address two things, however you like. One is to talk about where Israel-Palestine sits in the hierarchy of issues for Arab voters. And you talked about um, Arab American voters. You talked about that a little bit. Obviously there's a large, there's a, there's a lot on the plate, but if you could just, just muse on that question. But in addition, I want you to talk about the intersection at the grassroots level between the movement for Palestinian rights and the US, folk, US focused rights movement and particularly Black Lives Matter. You know, intersectionality became a real buzzword within this issue area and, and still is, I think it's, from the right, it's seen is very much demonized. From the left, it's a reason for hope. Can you talk about that? What it means, intersectionality, and and what it means for members of Congress looking forward, whether you know in terms of being responsive responsive to constituents or or getting elected. Yeah, thank you, Laura. Look, I think the most important thing when we talk about intersectionality and the effectiveness of 
these growing alliances is that they're natural. They're not kind of a planned thing that somebody in Washington came up with and then, you know, sent people out on the street. When Rashida Tlaib was elected to Congress, I think there was an assumption that she must be representing Dearborn, that her constituents must be the Arab Americans in Michigan. And that's actually not the case. Like she represents Detroit and it her, her constituents are majority African-Americans. And that is where she grew up. And that is the community that she loves. And that is the community that she is out on the street fighting for on a daily basis. And she didn't run for Congress to be an advocate for Palestine. She just is Palestinian-American. Rashida is out on the streets every day working on environmental justice and housing and credit reform and all of these issues that affect people's lives. Same with leaders like Linda Sarsour. And so what we've seen in this new generation of leadership is that Arab Americans, in a way that the older generation perhaps hadn't, are on the streets with the Black Lives Matter movement, with immigration advocates, with our brothers and sisters in all of these struggles, we are first with them, and then they're learning about Palestine. Cori Bush didn't know about Palestine first. She learned about it by sitting there on the street in Ferguson with Arab American activists joining her, and that's where those conversations kind of organically come. And so intersectionality is, you know, sounds like one of these kind of academic words, but what it really is is human connection. There's a reason that people attack Rashida to the extent they do. And it's because having her up there means there is a human being whose grandmother is living under occupation. And so for the first time when these members have to take these votes and issue these statements, they also have to look in the eye of their colleague who they work with on a daily basis and tell her, your grandmother doesn't matter. Your family's lived experience doesn't matter. And I think that that's why for me, you know, where I started my career at the Arab American Institute, that's why that was so important. Because I think that if if we can humanize this and actually have a conversation, we've talked a lot about the, the inability to have a debate, but it's also just to have a conversation where the Palestinian daily, like the, the daily lives of Palestinians and their existence and their struggle is actually just humanized. I don't think that all... I, Honestly, I don't think that all of the money and all of the political pressure can actually overcome that forever. And so that's why someone like Rashida, to me, is such an important figure in like the history of Arab American organizing, because she just brings who she is. But who she is, is she, she did not run for Congress specifically to fight for our issues. But that's just she just brings who she is to the halls of Congress. Thanks, Rebecca. Uh, unfortunately, that's all the time that we're going to have for this for this session. Um, so, on behalf of the Middle East Institute and the Foundation for Middle East Peace, uh, I want to thank our awesome panelists, Rebecca, <coughs> Hassan, and Josh, um, for a really rich and and informative discussion. And thanks to all of you who joined. Thanks again. Thanks, all. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.